This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, earlier this week, NOPD issued a warrant for the arrest of the former chief financial officer of the James Singleton Charter School after alleged fraudulent activity was discovered last spring. The newly created New Orleans Tourism and Cultural Fund awarded its first official grant since it was founded to the Greater New Orleans Sports Foundation, the host committee for the 2025 Super Bowl. And after repeated public records requests, the Lens has obtained names of over 38 current New Orleans Police Department officers who are on a so-called Brady List, the DA's list of cops with credibility issues. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Steins here. Hey, Michael. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hey, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, up first with education. The James Singleton Charter School, which is run by the Dryads YMCA, is back in the news this week. After the group's CEO and CFO both resigned in March amid an investigation into potentially fraudulent background checks, the NOPD this week issued a warrant for the CFO's arrest. What's going on? Remind us what happened in in the spring. Yeah, so uh, this actually first started in December when the uh, New Orleans Public School District was doing one of their routine checks at Singleton and they realized there were some missing background checks at the school. Um, And so when they came back to check in March, that's when we found out about the bigger problems. Um, I think they did a more in-depth review and they noticed that uh, several people had the same unique code on their background check, which is, you know, supposed to be an identifier for one person. Um, There were other issues with the background checks that just uh, were clearly very problematic. And so the district issued a warning to the school and said that, you know, they needed to, to clean this up soon. And then two weeks after that, we saw a kind of shakeup in administration. So it, it seemed like something was definitely going on. Yeah, and there was some funding associated with it. It's minimal, but it was it's it's amounts that are paid to the system that uh, administers the background checks. Right. So I, you know, I can't remember what a background check costs at the moment. Twenty five, maybe thirty dollars, yeah. something. And it appears some, like some of that money never made it from the. Uh, CFO's office um, to the background check company or the Louisiana State Police who is who um, Singleton was using in this case. So both the CEO and the CFO resigned in the wake of all of this activity in the spring and now the police have issued a warrant just for the CFO though. Right so um, she was the one who was in charge of background checks it appears you know uh, when the Principal of the school asked for the background checks. Um, she's the one who was sending them. At the bottom of those emails, there's this unique code from the state police that you can actually check on your own. And so, you know, I went to check all these codes that were out there. And sometimes we had the same person, two people that had the same code. One time there was three people that had the same code. And other times I would run a code and it would be for a teacher and um, it would come up as a, a totally different person who's a social worker at a completely different school. Can you speculate, is this, do you think, would this be nepotism? Would it be lazing? I mean, it's fraudulent activity. I suppose that's the crime. But uh, what do you think would be going on here? 
you know, it, it would seem strange to me to uh, just pocket $25 and not run these background checks, but uh, what did come up in the school leaders report was five different cases of uh, what they called, you know, a background check. You run a background check, and then if there's um, any criminal history in the person's background, it should come back with what they call a rap sheet, which um, describes those crimes um, that are potentially on their background check, which, you know, either either could make them ineligible to work at a school or it could be a lesser charge, but, you know, just something that would come up and they would see. It appears the CFO may have been doing that herself uh, because she does have a, a, she had a federal bank charge, bank fraud charge levied against her in the mid nineties. And she came up as, as not having had that displayed on her background check that she had provided um, from 2005, which actually, you know, is, would be fairly out of date now anyways. <laughs> 2021 right right yeah that it was a it was an embezzlement charge if i remember correctly right to uh, delta bank and trust where she apparently worked at the time it was yep and it was also a, a lower level thousand dollars ish range so i think one of the hard things you when you see these types of crimes happening in schools is when they are for you know small amounts of money that you don't quite know what's going on but in any case that that is a you know, that, that's certainly a crime that you would want to know about your, the chief financial officer of any organization. I think there's some other questions uh, left unanswered at this point in time, which is, you know, were they doing the correct level of background check for a school because the Dryads um, YMCA is a, you know, is a larger organization that doesn't necessarily have to have the same standards as a school. And then the other question, of course, is just what was the motive behind this? Was it, was it to get certain people hired? Was it uh, just to make things easier? Yeah, was it laziness? It's 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 unclear at this point in time. And I tried to check in with the NOPD yesterday, and they said that everything's going to have to go through the court system now. Okay. All right. We're just at the very end of the school year. What's happening with COVID as we race to the end? So our COVID cases held steady from last week. There's around 20. Um, I, what I do think is the one interesting thing is that uh, the majority of the cases were new again this week as they were last week. So. Hmm. Kind of watching that, you know, potential small tick up in cases and, you know, I think um, like we've talked about on this podcast that the schools are a very good weather vane for what's happening in the city and where we are soon going to lose that data point just because we're in, only a third of kids will be in summer school um, from the district and um, even if we even if we have fewer kids, we don't know if testing will be as robust or if we'll have the same type of information. Are, are they going to continue reporting during summer school? Well, we yet have the answer to that. I'm, I'm still waiting on that information. Okay. The mask mandate has been lifted by the governor. What's the uh, mask mandate in schools? Any requirements for summer school? Right. So he, he lifted it in schools. But um, what I know so far is that um, WWNO has reported that the district will keep the mask mandate in place for schools. I've also asked the district yesterday and they did not uh, get back to me before this podcast. But it does seem like the, the mask mandate will stay in place for summer school. Okay. And you, you said that a second ago, how many kids are expected for summer school? It's quite a lot. They're expected about 13,000 kids and uh, there are about 45,000 in the district. Is That's a tremendous jump, I would think, from a typical school year. I mean, tremendous. It's, it's definitely a jump. I don't know how big of a jump it is, but I think probably what we're seeing is a lot of the, the programs have, um, instead of only the kids who are failing or only the kids who are behind, they're opening up their programming to any uh, student who wants to stay. I think they're inviting a lot more kids in. So it's it's probably a combination of uh, 
both children who are behind or close to behind and obviously wanting to get more education. And I I would uh, venture to guess it's also a bit of a potential child care issue too, right? If your kids are in school, that's uh, cheaper than summer camp and certainly a lot easier to navigate than our our difficult and competitive child care situation in the summers. Thanks for the update, Marta. Thank you. Michael, the newly created New Orleans Tourism and Cultural Fund gave their first grant out this week and they're giving it to the Super Bowl host committee. Tell us the background on this organization and what was the purpose of the the fund in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, New Orleans um, spends a ton of public money uh, on the tourism industry. We're talking about ten over $100 million every year um, in public dollars goes to facilitating, marketing, encouraging the tourism and hospitality industry. But the majority of those dollars tend to go to large institutions like the Convention Center or the Superdome, um, to things like attracting the Essence Festival. So these kind of, the money tends to go to kind of bigger institutions. Now, the idea when this fund was set up was that this was kind of going to be a different type of tourism and, and culture spending, where instead of tr- paying these bigger institutions and, you know, routing this money to bigger events, you would be trying to get the money directly to, you know, quote unquote, culture bearers. So musicians and artists and Mardi Gras Indians um, trying to give out smaller amounts of money directly to people who, you know, make the culture of New Orleans happen and to support them. Now, that's not the legal limitations of what this money can be spent on. Um, to be clear. However, you know, over the, the year that this was pitched and, and you know, the, the, the fund was being set up, um, it, it was first set up in 2020, but throughout 2019, the way that it was pitched was that this was going to be a different type of tourism spending where the money was going to get directly to, again, contribute directly to that New Orleans culture. So instead, their first grant has gone to the Super Bowl host committee. How much and why? Yeah, so the total grant award is $1.2 million, but that's going to be spread out over five years. Um, so uh, this year it'll be $175,000 and then $250,000 the four years after that. Um, now, the reason why it gets a little complicated, and I'm going to do my best to do it as briefly as possible, but I also encourage people to, to read the article where it might be a little clearer. But basically, th- this new fund um, is the result of a merger between two publicly funded marketing agencies for the city's tourism industry. So we used to have these uh, two agencies. One was New Orleans and Company, and one was the New Orleans Tourism and Marketing Corporation. And both of them had more or less the same mission, which was to generally market the city's tourism industry to attract out-of-town visitors. So for a long time, people have thought that those two organizations should merge. But there were debates over whether they should be consolidated under New Orleans and Company, which is a private nonprofit, or New Orleans Tourism and Marketing Corporation, which is a uh, public body with a publicly appointed board, has public meetings, is subject to the you know public uh, the, the open meetings law and the public records requ- uh, public records law. So that had been a debate for for some years. Um, and then you may remember that uh, uh, Latoya Mayor Latoya Cantrell's fair share deal. Um, now the fair share deal was something that she negotiated in 2019 between the hospitality industry. Uh, and the state of Louisiana. And basically the idea was to funnel more uh, of these tourism and hotel taxes into more municipal services, especially infrastructure projects at at the Sewerage and Water Board. Now she ended up succeeding to a certain extent, but one of the compromises 
Um, one of the ways that the, the hospitality industry kind of won in that situation was that they were able to consolidate um, those two marketing agencies under the New Orleans and company banner. So basically all, almost all of New Orleans and tourism marketing corporations uh, funds and mission were transferred to New Orleans and company. However, there was a little bit of money, uh, one funding source left behind that originally the thought was that that was going to go to infrastructure spending. But instead, the city took this recurring revenue source, you know, that gives you some somewhere in the ballpark of three to five million dollars every year. And instead of putting that to infrastructure, they decided to set up this new fund. Now, the new fund not only inherited that new revenue source. They also inherited a few financial obligations that the New Orleans Tourism and Marketing Corporation had already agreed to. So in order to attract something like Essence Festival, for example, you know, marketing agencies and cities will throw in incentives and sometimes just straight up cash. So, you know, there are cash payments to Essence Festival that that are still being made every year, for example. Now, one of the uh, agreements um, that they inherited was to pay $1.2 million um, to the Super Bowl host committee. Now, what's weird is that these other payments, for example, to the Essence Festival, to Jazz Fest, that they also have inherited, they have not gone through a grant process. Um, those payments have not gone through any approval process. So it was a little bit strange that this Super Bowl host committee payment did have to go through a grant process if there was already a, an agreement in place um, that would have forced them to pay the money. So it's not clear why they had to go through the grant process? Exactly. So I asked, you know, why would, why is the Super Bowl host committee payment, you know, kind of separate, you know, why is that being singled out for grant approval and not the Essence Festival payments or any of the other ones? Um, and the answer I got was that the Essence uh, Festival payments were contractually obligated while there was not official contract hmm. uh, for the Super Bowl host committee payments. Okay. Um, I followed up and asked, well, you know, was this fund actually legally obligated to make these Super Bowl host committee payments? Um, and the response I got was that, you know, uh, they would have to check with general counsel. Um, so they couldn't tell me whether they actually had to make these payments to the Super Bowl host committee um, before um, approving this grant. Okay. Yeah. And just, you know, just for some context on this, the Super Bowl host committee being subsidized publicly is not is not a new thing. The the 2013 Super Bowl, the host committee had a budget around 17 million dollars. Most of that most of that budget came from public funding, in the form of either direct grants or uh, or tax rebates um, from the city and the state. The city every time a, a Super Bowl comes around, you know, offers big packages of income tax or uh, sales tax rebates for hotel rooms and things like that, along with pledging, you know, sort of millions of dollars in in-kind support in the form of uh, public security, police, and the Department of Public Works. Yeah, and, and if I could add to that, I mean, I, I think that folks in the hospitality industry would probably, uh, mo uh, many of them would probably agree that it is important for the city and for, you know, these tourism institutions to attract an event like the Super Bowl. Um, you know, that's going to make a lot of people a lot of money. There's going to be a lot of, you know, opportunities for musicians and chefs. And, you know, it's going to be a good thing for the hospitality industry. I mean, I think the difference here is that they've received, they've received direct funding, you know, they've received direct funding in the past from, from, you know, the state's Department of Cultural Recreation and Tourism, they've received 
direct funding in the past from organizations like New Orleans Tourism Marketing Corp and uh, and New Orleans and Company that have this mission to promote tourism and to promote big tourism. The difference here, as Michael has explained, is that this was a fund that was that was sort of sold to the public and the public officials as we're going to do something different with tourism. We're going to we're going to use this to fund tourism from the bottom bottom up rather than the top, or or to fund you know the the the, the city's culture, which is a core tourism draw from the bottom up rather than than the top down. But it, it's hard to imagine more top down than than direct funding to the Super Bowl host committee. Right. To, to add on to Charles's point, that there is already, you know, 100 to $150 million every year in public funds that are spent on this kind of big tourism business to right. do these big things, to attract people to the hotels. Um, and this is just such a relatively small grant. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to kind of define, you know, how much money each of these things has after coronavirus, because like everything is kind of topsy-turvy. Um, but before the coronavirus, this, you know, one... Uh, funding source brought in, you know, a little under six million dollars a year. So comparatively to the to the overall public funding for tourism, it was just, you know, it's just a very small amount in comparison. And and I think that, um, you know, now you're seeing it kind of spend the money on the same thing that all these other institutions do. Um, you know, you may remember last year, um, this fund was also tapped for five hundred thousand dollars to um, get New Orleans a spot on Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve on ABC which, you know, also raised some eyebrows um, because that seems like the type of thing that New Orleans and company would usually do. Um, so again, you know, the question, the big question here is, is this really going to be a different type of fund or is this the same type of, you know, tourism institution, you know, we're, we're used to. Right. And, and to those questions, the mayor had some answers, right? Didn't she talk about how she's going to uh, uh, create some bubbling up from the bottom cultural activities around the Super Bowl? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, there was some discussion at this board meeting, you know, you know, they, they, the, the exact discussion we're having now came up at the board meeting. Certain board members, you know, were like, are we sure we want to do this? You know, we were set up, you know, for the culture bears and this seems to be getting away from that. Um, the argument given was that the Super Bowl host committee, you know, is responsible for putting on a lot of events. Um, they hire a lot of people. They have, you know, a certain sway in terms of like where the NFL hosts its its Super Bowl concert and, and what bands they hire for their concert. So it, there wasn't exactly anything solid in terms of how this money will end up in the hands of culture bearers. Okay. Um, however, there was a commitment um, both by the um, the host committee uh, executive director and the the um, the fund um, to continue working. You know, up to twenty twenty five to make sure that that you know, these funds are being routed directly to um, to culture bearers. I mean, something that they talked about was trying to use some influence to get uh, Mardi Gras Indians into a Super Bowl commercial um, and pay them for that. So there were, you know, uh, there are a lot of ideas, but again, you know, none of them, I mean, this money is being sent uh, out and there isn't any, you know, solid um, return on that yet. We'll see. Okay, thank you, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Philip Kiefer, health reporter here at The Lens. When it matters, The Lens is here. 
and we're here because of you. Because of the thousands of people like you who support this service, you get the news that you tell us matters. Your tax-deductible gift now ensures that everyone in the community has access to facts and diverse voices and points of view. Ensure that you have the information you need and the news that matters. Every donation adds up to a public media service that serves the community. Make a donation at thelensnola.org slash donate. And thank you. All right, Charles, Nick is up in the Capitol reporting today. So you're going to talk about the story that he had this week about the, uh, the Brady list. During the Orleans Parish District Attorney Attorney's race, candidate Jason Williams promised to keep a list of police officers with credibility problems. Nick learned that this is in fact happening and he was able to obtain the list. Tell us what the Brady list is. Yeah, so the Brady list is something that it, you know, it's not it's not unique to Orleans Parish. This is something that has been uh, adopted by other uh, DAs around the country and I believe even within the state. Uh, but what it is, it's named after a uh, 1963 Supreme Court case, Brady v. Maryland. And the finding of the court in that case, um, you know, so, sort of, it, 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 it's, it's broader than just, you know, police with credibility problems. The finding of the court in that case was that, uh, uh, that prosecutors are obligated under the Constitution to turn over any evidence that to 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 the defense that could be uh, exculpatory that could that you know that that could be advantageous to the defense so you know among those things among those things arguably is if the you know arresting officer who who made the initial report or a detective who investigated the crime had some credibility issues had had been found to you know say discriminate discriminated against people um, or coerced a confession, or you know, or had uh, failed to turn on a body camera when required in the past. So before he became DA, uh, Jason Williams promised that he would uh, he would obtain from the NOPD a, a a list of officers with serious credibility issues uh, from from whom he he said he would not um, he would not accept casework, would not call them to testify. So. There's some indication that this list had been created at various points in the past or at the DA's office had asked for it in the past, but um, it had not been maintained for a long time at the very least. So that list was created and provided to the DA's office. Nick obtained that list from the DA's office through a public records request. And, you know, going through the list, what Nick found was that the misconduct complaints and, and investigations that were included in the list were a, a limited group. Only a few different types of misconduct were included in the list and not others. The others included some, some potentially very serious types of misconduct that speak directly to an officer's credibility. That included things like an officer found, uh, having been found to act in a discriminatory manner, officers you know, coercing confessions, uh, you know, two things that I mentioned off the bat, neither of those things made the cut for the Brady list, okay. um, as well as a host of other very serious misconduct types. Now, on top of that, what was not included were uh, officers with misconduct complaints that were still being investigated, regardless of how serious the misconduct, the alleged misconduct was. So in terms of, of complaints that had been investigated and sustained, 
We found, for example, four of the six officers who were involved in the in a high speed chase that was an unauthorized chase. Chases are not uh, allowed by the NOPD unless authorized by a supervisor. A chase that resulted in a fatal crash and fire at a beauty supply store in Broadmoor a few years back. Four of the six officers involved in that were not on the list, as well as an officer who was arrested last year for allegedly molesting a teenage girl. In that second case, the reason he wasn't included, according to the NOPD, was that the the internal investigation was still in process, even though this guy has been arrested and charged, arrested by the NOPD and charged, and he has been he has been let go from his position as an officer. So it sounds like there's the list that's created that was created originated really with the police department that the DA's office now has, and it sounds like they are having to do their own work on this to add, amend. Yeah, to, to supplement this list in a way that they think would be more appropriate. That's what they're telling us, um, that they're going to work on creating their own list. You know, basically, there is a, they're able to get uh, you know, records and information fairly easily from the city and the NOPD. Um, you know, there's publicly available information on types of misconduct complaints that have been levied against officers. Um, so they're saying that, yeah, they're, they're not satisfied with this list and they're going to take another look at it and possibly help develop their own list. You know, my interpretation of, of the list was they basically filtered for types of offenses that include the word dishonesty in them. So that is a technical charge is, is dishonesty, <laughs> as well as, as offenses that found that they had, you know, violated a criminal law of some kind. But there are all sorts of other misconduct, you know, misconduct categories that speak directly to credibility that that don't fall under the label dishonesty or breaking a criminal law. Now, to further complicate things, what we've learned, uh, what we've learned or what is being alleged since the publication of this list by one of the two officers associations is not only does this list appear to be, you know, incomplete in the way that we reported on it. But uh, the uh, Police Association of New Orleans, as WDSU reported yesterday, Wednesday, is also alleging that the, there, there are inaccuracies in the officers who are on the list. Um, officers wherein you know, the complaint was perhaps not sustained or were later cleared after a sustained complaint by the New Orleans Civil Service Commission. So the police department is now doing its own review of the list for accuracy and completeness. Oh. Are there bigger implications to like being on this list and also still being a police officer? So there are 38 officers on the list who are still police officers. I know Nick is taking a look at what it is that those officers are, are doing, you know, what their assignments are. Um, because, you know, being on a list that has found you to not be credible enough to be able to testify or be involved in the prosecution of a case, you know, sort of raises the question of, you know, should, should you be doing any type of police work wherein you're developing casework, where, wherein you're investigating or, or, you know, arresting people and producing incident reports that will be used uh, as as evidence in a trial, so I can't say for sure where the where these officers are assigned right now or what it is they're doing, but you know there are there are various there are various positions within the police department. You know, if the misconduct did not re- rise to the level of a uh, 
you know, of a, of a fireable offense, but it did rise to the level of, of, of uh, putting an officer's credibility into question. There are various uh, positions within the NOPD where an officer can be employed but is, is not doing anything that will directly speak to, you know, casework that goes into prosecution. I'd be interested in how the DA's office and the police departments, how their cultures are merging or or there's friction still or m- more friction now. I'm, I'm well, just so curious about the process between these two organizations having to work hand in hand together. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, these are these are two these are two organizations that have to work hand in hand, and especially with a process with process with an administration like like Williams's, who's developing things like this. Um, you know, there there's going to be some friction between the two groups, but you know, it's it seems like the 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 police department, at least you know, at the administrative level, has not voiced any you know opposition to this to this program or this this list existing. Okay. I feel like the Brady list is them almost exactly working hand in hand, right? It's it's William saying if you bring me a case, it better be right. It better it you know it it it, it better involve it, it it better be a case that I can that I can trust. Now, is it fair, do you think, Charles, to bring up this other big story this week in this context? It, I, I think it's relevant because it's another promise that D.A. Williams made. A promise that he made during the campaign. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming at the police department it was a decision that was applauded to try these kids in adult court. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I, I can't speak for the police department. Mm, of course. Um, but it is, it, it, you know, it's it's... It's something that, you know, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people on the more pro-law enforcement side kind of, kind of applauded. But yeah, you know, so the background on this is Jason Williams, when he was running for, for office, said that uh, there were various criminal, criminal justice, criminal justice reform advocacy groups that were sort of, uh, you know, sending out questionnaires as uh, to get, to get a sense of what the prosecutorial philosophy of the candidates was. Uh, and they ask things like, "Are you ever going to p- pursue the death penalty? Are you going to Are you going to use the habitual offender statute?" And and another one of these questions was, "Are you going to charge juveniles as adults? Um, you know where where state law allows that." So Leon Canizero, Williams's predecessor, sort of famously he famously used the used this. When you know, whenever he was legally allowed to, and uh, you know that got him a lot of uh, got him a lot of flack from criminal justice reformers, whose argument is you are subjecting someone who's not fully developed, whose brain isn't fully developed, who may be a completely different person in five or six years. Uh, you're subjecting them to uh, you know potentially decades in prison. Depending on what the crime is, so he promised as as a candidate that he would not do this. Um, he he made this promise at the time without qualifying it. He said he wouldn't do it. Period. And four months into his uh, into his administration, he comes up against a case where you know I have to I have to admit it's it's it it was it was a difficult test of this promise because. This this was a case with a, a a woman who was who was driving to deliver groceries to her relatives and was, you know, gunned down, killed, uh, allegedly by by these defendants. Um, so so it's you know it's a fairly 
it's a fairly shocking crime. It's, it's a very tragic crime. Um, and uh, that was the justification that, that D.A. Williams used to, to make this decision to, uh, to have his prosecutors pursue an adult charge in the grand jury. It's something that he's, since he's made this decision, groups that you know, strongly supported her, him during his campaign have come out against this, have been very critical of him. But those on the, you know, on the more pro-law enforcement side have, uh, have, have really applauded, applauded him and it. said he made the right decision in this case, given you know, the seriousness of the charges. Right. Can I ask a quick question? Mm-hmm. I, I thought I saw in Nick's story that part of like Williams' explicit justification for this was, um, I mean, there were a few things, but one of the things listed was that she was delivering groceries to her elderly what, aunt. So I'm just wondering, I, I know that like sympathy obviously has a role in what prosecutors choose to do. I've just never, I don't know if I've heard explicitly stated that, you know, this crime is worse because when it was committed, the person, the victim was, you know, do, I mean, you know, if she had been out buying, you know, marijuana, right? I, I just, I'm a little, is that usually cited as like explicit reason to, to up charges? I don't know if he was saying that that was like a legal factor. I think, I think, you know, a prosecutor, a prosecutor always tries to craft a narrative, right? And part of that narrative is creating sympathy for for the victim in the case. And so, so the fact that she was doing that is is you know part of that strategy to, to create you know empathy for the victim. Makes sense. Right. And without without commenting on the decision, the the reason it's news is not only that it's it was a big it was a big story. The crime was a story, but the campaign and the promise, and then going back on the on, on the promise, is the news. Yeah, that was yeah, the story. It, it, it was, um, and uh, whatever you feel about the decision, and you know, I, I guess we do have to give some credit. We have to give credit to to Williams because he he at least got out in front of this. He could have downplayed this. He could have put out a press release about it. Um, but he, he, at the very least, he held a press conference. You know, he gave, he gave reporters the opportunity, including Nick, who did, um, to point out that this goes directly against the promise he made as, as a DA or as a candidate for DA. So, yeah, I mean, this, this has been the story. The story has been that he, he, he appears to have broken a campaign promise. However, you know, he has hedged on that somewhat in, a, in an interview this week, I believe, with WWL-TV. He said that the intention of the promise was not uh, to say that he would never do it in any case, but that he would never do it in any case other than homicide cases, which is something that I do not recall him saying on the campaign trail. Yeah, and this kind of fits into the more like national story of you know how far does the progressive DA you know really go once they're elected, um, which is something that you know places like Philadelphia, other cities are like also grappling with. So I, it's a really interesting thing to watch. Right. It is. Okay, and it, it, it's interesting in the context of these, the two stories together seem to me to be um, of a piece. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that, as you suggested, I would imagine is something, is, is an outcome that many in the law enforcement community and the police department would, would have wanted to see from this case. You know, not to mention that many of, though Jason Williams has hired a lot of civil rights and defense attorneys um, in, in his office since taking office, those attorneys have not generally been placed into the trial division, which is the division that um, 
that is prosecuting this crime. Hmm. They've more been placed into the civil rights division and the appeals division. So you can also imagine that, you know, there are also intra-office politics at play. There are prosecutors who came, uh, who, who are sort of legacy prosecutors from Canizero's office, who worked under a different regime with a different philosophy. And you can imagine that they were pushing to, uh, to prosecute this crime as an adult crime as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it was good. It was a good story. These stories were great. Well reported by Nick. And thanks, Charles, for your astute analysis of them. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for your work this week. Have a great week. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.